Okay, you wonderful people, gather, gather around, gather back in. As Kate says, it's so nice to see, kind of feel life and energy, you amazing people. Uh, my name's Neil, if you don't know me, I'm married to the wonderful, amazing Kate, who you've already met. Um, together we attempt to lead this, uh, this church, this rabble. Um, uh, last week, um, as part of uh, uh, ongoing, we've been doing, if you've not been around here, we've been doing a, a series um, on the subjects of justice. And last week uh, we began a kind of a little sub-series on migration. Um, and when I say migration, what I probably kind of more accurately mean is, uh, like, how do we treat the stranger? How are we to treat, uh, you know, the foreigner uh, in our midst? And as we said last week, you know, we've got the Nationality and Borders Bill that's now um, with the House of Lords and the whole subject of kind of migrants and migration that regularly in the headlines of the national press. Um, this is a subject really that's going to be is knocking around our brains um, somewhere. And of course, uh, I hope it goes with that saying, as, as people of faith, um, hopefully uh, we all recognize that, that all migrants, all refugees, all asylum seekers are, are people made in the uh, image of God and, and therefore should be treated with uh, the utmost dignity and respect. But yet at the same time, um, even in the midst of all of the calamitous uh, news that seems to be circulating at the moment. Um, in spite of that, uh, you know, we do believe that God has initiated um, governments uh, with laws and that those laws and those things are in place for a reason. And so some of us are kind of a little bit confused, a little bit perplexed as to uh, how we work out what our faith uh, requires of us uh, you know, on this pressing issue of migration. You know, as followers of Jesus, um, as followers of Christ, how do we how do we sort through all of the rhetoric um, to steer a course, if you like, that reflects both God's justice on the one hand, um, as well as His love and His compassion? And so, um, hopefully, to help us a little bit with that, as we dig into this subject over the coming weeks, um, we're going to take a look at some of what the Bible has to say on the subject, which is always uh, a good place to start. And um, when I say it's a good place to start, it, it is a good place to start, but it's not always, um, how do I put this, quite as straightforward as um, one might imagine, as I have discovered this week uh, in preparing this sermon. And the reason I say that is because um, sometimes what the Bible, um, what the Bible may or may not say on any given subject can sometimes depend on how we read the Bible in the first place. Does that make sense? What it might say or our understanding of what it might be saying might be dependent on how we're reading it in the first place. For example, you know, what happens um, to our understanding of the scriptures? What happens to our understanding of the Bible if we read the Bible from um, from the margins and when I say uh, the margins what I mean is you know what happens when we read the scriptures from the perspective of the outsider what happens when we read the bible from the from the perspective of the foreigner the one who's cast aside does it change 
our interpretation, our understanding of the scriptures somewhat. You know, take, for example, uh, the story of, say, Abraham and Sarah, you know, a story that uh, we're probably all fairly familiar with. You know, if you've been around churches uh, for a while, you've probably heard more than a fair uh, few sermons on um, Abraham and Sarah and her tell of their great faith. But what of Hagar, Sarah's servant? How often have we heard a sermon on Hagar? And if we have heard a sermon on Hagar, how is she portrayed? Well, uh, if you're feeling brave enough uh, and you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis uh, chapter 16 and let's have a look, shall we? Uh, this is Genesis chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Now, um, you've got to remember Abraham and Sarah, um, this, that was after they'd had their name changed before they were um, Abraham and Sarai. So, uh, in, in Genesis uh, 16, verse 1, there's still Abraham and Sarai. So uh, now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. And so after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband, to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her, do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. So she fled, from, she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that's beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your mis misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. Lucky chap. Uh, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. Uh, she, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That's why the well was called uh, Beer, hard word, hard word. Um, it's still there between Kadesh and Barak. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave, his name, gave him the name Ishmael uh, to the son that she'd born, Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. I don't know why, but I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, and kind of like a lot of these Old Testament stories, um, this one is not one of the easiest to stomach, um, especially as in the case here when it comes to um, the treatment of women, um, the treatment of children, uh, the issue of slavery. There's, um, there's a lot of struggle uh, in here, but um, grapple uh, with these stories, I think we must. And I'm, I'm not sure I've ever really quite got my head around what's going on um, here, but 
Whilst there's much in this story that I am very unsure of, one thing I am sure of is the fact that um, Hagar, in my opinion, is very much one of the great heroes um, of the scriptures. And if I'm um, being honest, while I was uh, prepping for this talk, I think the Spirit of God uh, kind of took me on a pretty major detour uh, to the talk that I was planning on giving, um, which basically means um, I'm not sure that this is the talk that I was intending to give. However, it's the talk that I think I'm supposed to give. Um, at least we'll, we'll see, shall we? Uh, many cultures, uh, um, including the Jewish culture, your, your name or what you um, were called meant something, means something very significant. Um, you know, Adam comes from the, the Hebrew word meaning ground. Eve uh, means living. Uh, one of uh, Jesus' disciples, uh, Simon, Simon, that name means um, one that hears or one that obeys, you know, and, and Simon was one of the very first people to hear the message and the call of Jesus, and Simon has his name changed from um, Simon to Peter, uh, which means rock, and, you know, as in, on this rock I will build my church, according to Jesus, and then um, the same would be true for Jesus, the word Jesus, the name means saviour, it means um, deliverer. You know, and so what you were named, I mean, we see it here with the story of Abraham and Sarah, their names are changed, and you kind of saw that a lot throughout the Old Testament. Uh, what you were named, what you were called, mattered. It, 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 it carried weight. And so what of Hagar's name? Well, Hagar um, means stranger. Hagar uh, means forsaken. Literally, it means foreign thing. And uh, in a time, you know, when names said so much about who you were, it's pretty difficult to imagine anything quite so dehumanizing um, as uh, being named foreign thing. But this is the case for Hagar. Uh, she's uh, Sarai's um, servant, and she's the one who becomes the mother of Ishmael. Now, before we get too much uh, into what is, as I've already said, a pretty grim Old Testament story, uh, my original intention was to focus on Hagar as an example of like um, a foreign, a foreign uh, the stranger, and, and perhaps um, how she should have been treated over and above the way that she was in fact um, treated. But as I said, uh, I kind of got hijacked and ended up on a slightly different um, track. And, and the track that I've kind of ended up on um, is really around something that happens in Genesis 16 verse seven, um, where Hagar's story, I think, takes a little bit of an unexpected turn. Um, so Hagar, this Hagar, this, this foreigner, this stranger, she becomes the first person in the entire Bible to receive, um, to experience, to, to have, I don't know what the, the right word is, um, an annunciation. Um, she has, she experiences this uh, appearance, a special messenger from God um, himself. And not only that, but just, you know, kind of by way of an aside, she's also the first person to give God a name. So she's kind of pretty important. Um, but it was this annunciation thing encounter that had me a little bit stumped. And that's because as I reflected on it, um, Hagar's Annunciation in Genesis 16 is almost identical to Mary's Annunciation in Luke chapter 1. 
Um, now, you know, as we know, um, the stories around Jesus' birth, you know, they didn't just emerge from like a vacuum out of, out of nowhere. Jesus' birth was meant to sort of echo and, and resonate with other sort of stories and narratives throughout the gospel, uh, throughout, the, throughout the history that the gospel readers would have recognized and would have known. And, and they kind of would have also been sort of framed around particularly the sort of miraculous births of the heroes of the faith, you know, um, like uh, Sarah and her son Isaac, who we'll get to uh, maybe in a minute, um, Hannah um, and Samuel is another example, and um, uh, what's his name, um, what's his name's wife and their son Samson, so pe people like that. And all of these kind of stories and births, you know, they all happened against the odds, they were children who were marked by God, children who didn't come easily, they were hard um, one, but we're all, um, they're all precious, they're, they're all full of potential. And then there's Hagar. Hagar, this foreigner, this stranger, the slave of Abraham and Sarah, um, who Sarah um, offers to Abraham as a, as a surrogate, you know, when she has given up on this idea of having children. And, you know, as I've said, uh, the reality is this story from Genesis 16, um, there is no getting away from the fact that it's an ugly story. It's the story of systemic oppression. Uh, it's a story of individual cruelty. It is, without question, um, a brutal story. You know, you've got this older woman, um, Sarah, who basically hands over this, this young girl, Hagar, to this old man, Abraham into what is really a pretty disgusting arrangement that is in effect some kind of enforced sexual slavery. Um, and the eventual outcome of that union is that Hagar has a son, um, Ishmael. Um, but what happens is, you know, um, Hagar offends her, uh, her mistress, her owner, um, Sarah and Sarah, basically is, you know, continues to sort of abuse her until Hagar's had enough. And uh, so Hagar runs away and goes off into the wilderness. And here she is, uh, we find her sitting um, by a well. And lo and behold, an angel of the Lord appears. Uh, this messenger of God appears and we're like, oh, praise God, you know, at last, um, Hagar's plight has been seen and she's, she's gonna be rescued. Um, but what does the angel say? You know, does the angel come and step in and make it all right? You know, does he make right the brutal cruelty that, you know, has been this poor girl's life story? Um, no, like far from it. What the angel says to her in verse 9 of chapter 16 is, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. So here we have Hagar, this um, Egyptian uh, girl. You know, she's just a child. Uh, probably by today's reckoning, she's a slave, she's a foreigner, she's a stranger, she's a migrant. And here we have, um, on the other hand, we have Abraham, God's kind of hero, God's chosen one, you know, chosen to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham's got all this incredible wealth. Like he's a very, very wealthy, very powerful, very influential man. And all of his wealth um, basically gives him this power and this authority of, of life or death or comfort or misery over Hagar. And one of the many things that's so troubling, I think, in this story is that um, all this power, all this wealth that Abraham has, um, has come from God. 
It's God who's blessed him with all that he has. And whether this is a story about a woman um, fighting another woman, um, or whether it's about men abusing their wealth and power, or indeed if it's about Hagar's suffering seeming like it's coming from God himself, the thing I think that's hard to get away from is that having escaped the oppression and the injustice, it looks like God is now sending Hagar right back into the middle of it. Um, now, uh, just if you're new here, and just to be clear, just to put all things in perspective and context, um, just to be clear, I do believe that the Bible is the inspired word of a loving God, okay? Just so we're clear, just in case you're not sure. Um, and you know that whilst much of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is um, challenging, to say the least, I believe that it is our job as followers of Jesus to grapple with uh, the challenge of it all and wrestle with it um, and some of it does need wrestling with you know not just sort of airbrush it all out for the sake of convenience uh, but that said um, I think and I hope my commitment to scriptures um, at least I try for it to be fundamentally expressed through a commitment to truth and I have to say here that from where I'm standing you know looking at this um, young immigrant mother, as I've said, not much more um, than a child herself. Um, and as we'll see uh, in a minute from chapter uh, 21, you know, stuck out somewhere in the desert with her baby. Um, the God of this story isn't looking particularly great. Um, now, before I get emails, um, I don't think that's heresy. I just think it's reality. I think it's a realistic observation and reflection on the story that we're reading. And if um, I'm being honest, I think the pain and the abuses that are inflicted on this girl in this story um, to this foreigner in their midst, you know, I don't think it's easy for me to explain um, it away. I don't think it's easy for me to just uh, contextualize. I don't think it's easy for me to turn it into some helpful spiritual metaphor somehow, um, even with the best wood in the world and with every exegetical trick of the trade, I'm not sure I can make this story palatable in any way. And I could have just ignored it and gone for something easier, but um, I didn't feel like I was allowed to do that. So I'm sorry uh, if you're new or visiting. They're not always, my sermons aren't always this depressing. Like, um, are they? <laughs> Maybe they are. Um, and I think, and I, and I may be wrong here, um, but I think, if I tried to sort of convince you that this was all good and it was all okay, um, possibly in some way I think I'd probably become complicit. I'd probably become party to the abuses that I think Hagar has suffered. Um, and actually, more importantly, I think I'd probably be in danger of betraying the God that I know from both scripture and from experience, um, who is a God who loves justice. And so my question then becomes, um, where then is God in this story? Where is God in the story of this migrant girl mistreated and taken advantage of by those who really should have known better? I mean, it's odd because in one sense, in this story, God is more present than ever. Um, you know, with all these appearances and these angels and these, you know, um, pronouncements and enunciations and prophetic words and revelations. 
It's like he's more present than ever, and yet at the same time, um, God seems more absent than ever uh, in terms of his justice, if that makes any sense. Well, um, I think when we're faced with uh, one of these somewhat thorny narratives that seem to spring up throughout the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, with um, frequent delight, uh, I'm pretty sure that what we're not supposed to do is just ignore them or, or kind of metaphorically or literally sort of tear out the pages um, of, the, you know, the offending pages. I think when we find ourselves in a narrative or in a story in the scriptures where God seems absent, I think we would be wise to gently but persistently ask of both the story and of ourselves, well, where do we see God at work? Where might God actually be? And when I say God, I, I mean the real God, you know, the God that we no, the God that we know from the whole redemptive arc of the scriptures. You know, we have to look at the whole thing from beginning to end and look at that redemptive hermeneutic which spreads and extends throughout the whole scriptures, as well as the God that we have encountered through the wonderful person of Jesus Christ, as well as the God that we have experienced in our own lives. Uh, but meanwhile, while we're trying to find God in our um, pretty bleak um, story. Uh, let's get back to what is becoming an increasingly challenging story. Um, and I say increasingly challenging because if you turn on a few chapters to ch chapter 21 of Genesis, uh, it kind of gets a bit worse before it gets better. I'm not actually sure it gets better, it gets worse. Let's just leave it there. Um, I, we haven't got time to look at it now, but uh, I'm sure you'll do that as your bedtime reading. Uh, this is uh, chapter 20, 21, and this time um, Sarah, she's now been renamed uh, Sarah because she's had a child at last, her golden boy, uh, Isaac, the, you know, the father of the nation of Israel. But according to um, his mother, according to Sarah, uh, Isaac has got this habit of, of kind of playing with, um, with uh, the wrong and unsuitable uh, kids in the camp, namely um, Ishmael. And so um, Sarah tells Abraham, she's, she's had enough of these two, so she tells Abraham again, she says, um, just send them away send them off into the wilderness. And, um, and it's like this whole thing is like a recurring nightmare for Hagar and Ishmael. And they end up walking alone in the desert and, until their water uh, runs out. And finally, Hagar's in this situation in chapter 21 where she, I think, has come to the point where she realizes she's unable to save her boy. Uh, and she leaves him under a bush, just like a little bit away from her, because I, I think she can't, uh, bear to watch him die and and in the pain of that moment um, she cries she cries out in, uh, in in Genesis chapter 21 verse 16 it says this and, and as she sat there she began to sob and God heard the boy this is by verse 17 God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her what's the matter Hagar do not be afraid God has heard the boy crying as he as he lies there lift the boy up and take him by the hand for I will make him into a great nation so here we are looking at this, uh, looking for God in this story, and here, um, here he is again, uh, actually calling out to Hagar from heaven. I mean, as I said, God is very present uh, in so many ways, and once again, Hagar encounters like the angel of God, um, and in the midst uh, of all of the pain, there are these promises of hope, you know, it's like, pick him up, pick up the child, you know, don't be afraid, I'm going to make him into a great nation. 
Uh, what does the angel say? What does the angel say to her? He says, do not be afraid. And again, if we're familiar with the, the whole uh, story and the whole canon of scripture, uh, it's a familiar refrain. But if you noticed how um, God's messengers seem to always be asking us to do something which actually feels like it's impossible. And maybe, just maybe, that's the, the hint of the presence of God in this story. That God is not so much the one who waves a magic wand and makes all of the pain and the heartache go away, which is sometimes, I think, what we um, wish he would do. But maybe he is the one who hears our cries and who tells us to face what is hard um, and to not be afraid because he's right there with us in it all. But if I'm honest, uh, this is one of those stories, uh, despite the fact that there's an actual sort of real life encounter uh, with an angel, not just once, but sort of twice. This is one of those stories um, where I think God is perhaps less easy uh, to find. As I said, not in the absence of his presence, but in the seeming absence of his justice. Um, I think it's still a deeply hard and a profoundly unjust story. Um, this past week, uh, you need to sympathize with Kate, this past week I've had this ongoing um, pain from a toothache. Uh, yesterday I had the joy of root canal, or what CJ, CJ Craig, I think in the West Wing calls root, root canal. <laughs> um, and uh, interestingly, this week, Hagar's story has kind of been like my toothache. Uh, it's just been this constant sort of nagging that something is not quite right. Uh, it's just been gnawing away at me. It's been keeping me awake at night. It's making, been making me irritable during the day. Um, because the truth is, um, this story bothers me um, every time I think about it. Uh, there's something very wrong about the way Abraham, in my opinion, um, there's something very wrong about the way Abraham and Sarah, who really should have known better, have seemingly so little regard uh, for Hagar's life. For me, there's just way too much injustice in this um, story. And maybe, um, and this is again just maybe, and forgive me for my uncertainty, uh, but maybe there is something about the parallel between the two enunciations, between Hagar's and Mary's, um, that possibly may bring some uh, sense of redemption to the pain of Hagar's experience. Maybe we're to look through Hagar's enunciation and the birth of Ishmael um, through to Mary's enunciation and the birth of Jesus, the coming of a Messiah who will and who does and who has righted all of these wrongs, um, even those wrongs committed by the so-called chosen ones of God. Uh, sadly, we live in a time and a world that for so many people, um, especially for women, uh, especially for children, and especially for migrants, the world that they find themselves in today is not so different to the world in which Hagar found herself in all those years ago. Um, we still see power and wealth being used unjustly against uh, so many. And so as ancient as Hagar's story is, 
Uh, for many, for far too many, it's all too modern. Uh, but as I said, perhaps through Mary's story, Hagar's story is redeemed. And maybe that's why the story told in Luke reads so much like an inversion of this story told in Genesis. Perhaps the gnawing sort of injustice of Hagar's story around the birth of Ishmael is only redeemed and put right through Mary's story and the birth of Jesus. But if all of that's true, I don't think Mary's story um, replaces Hagar, uh, replaces Hagar's story or, or negates it. If anything, I think it honors it. I think it affirms it. Um, Mary's story, I think, is in part to remind us all of Hagar's story so that this young migrant girl who suffered so brutally at the hands of those whose care she was in um, would not be forgotten. And so, as I said, not quite the talk I had planned, uh, but still very much uh, hopefully one about uh, justice and especially justice for the migrant. And I suppose, just as we finish, um, I think the, the reflection that maybe the Spirit of God is inviting us to consider and to, to think about um, and for us to ask ourselves is who might be the Hagar's in our lives? Who, who might be the Hagar in your life? And what I mean by that is who are the people in our lives who we may not see um, but perhaps we ought to. Who are the people in our lives who, like Hagar, um, might be suffering injustice, either at our hands, consciously or unconsciously, um, or at the hands of others, that we can help, that we can support, that we can encourage, that we can stand alongside, so that unlike Abraham and Sarah, we aren't, as I say, consciously or not, adding to the injustice or mistreatment of the other and in so doing are remembering uh, the story of Hagar. Why don't you stand?